Okay, we're back with a new episode of This Week in the CLE, and we're going to start it with a provocative question. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with my colleagues Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon, and are you ready to be provocative? All right. right. Let's go. (laughs) Let's get started. Okay. With a prevailing theory that it is inevitable that most of the planet gets exposed to COVID-19, here's the question. Would it make sense to just get it now and avoid losing a year of your life trying to avoid it? Okay. I know it's crazy. I know that the idea of infecting yourself with a new virus that could kill is a frightening prospect, not advocating it. I can make a lot of arguments against it, but I just want to have the discussion. If, as a Nature article out today makes the case, we're going to get exposed eventually, why waste time? Why not just get get through it? Not vulnerable populations, not the elderly, but people that, that have the best odds. Why not do it? Because you're going to have to do it anyway. Okay, let me have it. <laughs> <laughs> Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston. Uh, okay, I'll go first. Um, you know, I actually had conversations with friends about this early on, thinking like, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if you just got like the mild symptoms or no symptoms, and then you could be beyond it. But since then, I mean, we've heard so much about what this virus can do to your body. And I'm a healthy person, but blood clots and and lung damage and kidney damage, and it's just too scary to fathom. Uh, so I'm the cautious person, and I'm going to err on the side of, of trying not to get it. And just and, hope against hope that the predictions <laughs> that it's going to sweep the globe are wrong or that, that a vaccine will come out. Nature makes a good case that vaccines don't really work for coronaviruses, uh, but, but hope for the vaccine and hope that you just don't have any risk of the horrible symptoms that happen in a small percentage of the population. Right. I mean, I, I completely understand Jane's point, and I agree that at the beginning, I was much more laissez-faire. And as you read more about what the disease can do, it makes you more cautious. At the same time, I'm the person that's like, yes, I want to go to Playhouse Square and see Hamilton. I'm sure I'll be fine. And I don't know if part of it is that I'm 40 and there's not a lot of deaths for people my age, or part of it is that I'm an optimistic person you know, the kind of like, well, what's what could go wrong kind of person or the fact that I have two kids that are driving me batty um, and makes me want to reenter the world. I think a lot of it depends on your own personal health and your family situation. But I, I think it is worth discussing. I don't think I think it would be a very hard thing to do, though, if you're like, yes, actually you know, open my- your throat with coronavirus. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> open your mouth and be like, inject me with poison oh. that could kill me. Right. I just, okay. 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 All right. That would I, be what, a hard step. Stop for I mean, I put this question out this morning on my um, text messaging account where where I put out provocative ideas. I'm going to get hammered. People are going to tell me I'm crazy. And again, I'm not advocating for this. All I'm trying to do is provoke the discussion. And again, the predicate question is, if it's pretty much a certainty, you're going to get this, which it's looking more and more like that is true. The, there's a new study out this morning that says the median number of days before you show symptoms is 5.1. And if that's the case, that means lots of people that have this walk around not knowing, infecting everybody else. It's swept the globe in a matter of, what, three months, right? So, so if you're going to get it, 
if if there's really nothing you can do to avoid getting it, why wait? Hey, I think an important point to make here, just to be responsible, if you do get it and you know you have it, you really need to quarantine yourself for 14 days and not be irresponsible and give it to other people. I right. mean, if you made that kind of decision that, okay, I'm... Well, I don't even know how you do it, right? I mean, if you wanted to go, I'm not, so I'm not, <laughs> right. You, there's all sorts of caveats to this. You would have to quarantine. You could not expose anybody to it. You'd have to have the food and everything you need to get by. But I don't think many people are really happy with the current state of life. And there's a whole lot of people who are unemployed. And eventually unemployment runs out. If the economy's not running back, they'd love to go back to work. And and like Lars said, 40, 30, 20s, no underlying conditions. You know, a lot of people don't even get symptoms. And, and when you're that young, it's not that bad. They might be willing is a personal choice to do that. Of course, you'd have to make sure that the hospitals aren't overrun by waves of people. There's a million arguments against it. I just it was one of those ideas I thought as I read the Nature article. Well, if I'm going to get it anyway, <laughs> I'd rather just take my medicine, right? I but- think there are people that would agree with you and say, I can't take it anymore. And I, the longer this goes on, I don't know, there might be more people that come to that side that's just like, please just get it over with. But it is, it's kind of like Russian roulette, right? Like you don't know if you're going to be the, the the horror story. Right. It's Russian roulette with one bullet, but there's a hundred empty slots in the chamber. It's, you know, it's, yeah, it's a gamble. Although- I think the younger you are, uh, clearly the statistics show the, the the better chance you have. I mean, I'm I'm in my fifties, so okay, forget I, it for me then. I'm, in, I'm I'm right. It's like, <laughs> you'd have to have all of your family agree to this, right? Like, if I were like, yes, I want it, and my husband is like, you are insane, you are not doing that. I couldn't do it, right? You, right. I mean, the people, unless you're just going to go to a hotel room for two weeks. I, and I I just I wonder if this is a question that people start asking and and again i'm i'm gonna get pounded i'm sure by the texters telling me i'm a lunatic but just want to pose it and see i think if you had to make a list of pros and cons the cons would greatly outnumber the pros and again actually having the coronavirus put onto your throat to start it man that's a step that i i would really have a hard time taking okay it's this week in the cle Should Cleveland and Cuyahoga County merge into a single city because of the economic havoc of the coronavirus? It's one of the core questions of the day. Income taxes, the fuel of many municipal budgets, have plummeted like never before. Mayors and city councils have challenges they've never faced before, and they don't even know the full extent of them yet. Cleveland is even more challenged. It gets most of its budget from suburbanites who work in the city, and many of them are working from home and likely will not return, meaning Cleveland will lose a lot of money. Laura Johnston is the answer for all of these cities in Cuyahoga County to become one. Well, that is one big possibility. Reporter Pete Krause talked to a bunch of leaders, and while no one said no way to that kind of big idea, I think blockchain mogul Bernie Moreno was the only person who was all in on a merger of Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, and the suburbs. Others talked about the same thing they've been talking about since I moved back to Cleveland in 2007, sharing services, maybe even fire departments. Others, it seems like the idea that this crisis could be a moment for big change, it hadn't even crossed their minds. Like Armin Budish was puzzled by a possible task force to examine 
potential structural reforms to the tax system. Even and, though he had promised this task force in a meeting with our editorial board. I know. And then Parma Mayor Tim DeGeter said he's just trying to balance the city's budget. Like he can't think beyond that. Yeah, I know. But that's that, there's a short sightedness going on in leaders in Cleveland where they're all saying, I got to deal with the crisis. I can't think down the road. And it's like, you can't do two things at once. Look, you mentioned the sharing of services. Every time that's been contemplated, it goes so far down the road and then people pull out because of pedestrian parochial interests. The problem here, though, is, is that the way the state constitution is set up, each and every city would have to vote for this. And that's never going to happen. So the best you might get is a patchwork of of mergers or, again, services. I have a hard time seeing the path to this. Yeah, remember when Moreland Hills and Orange and two other communities had this big announcement about a merger and then it just all fell apart? I think Orange was the only one that voted for it, maybe. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a big consensus. It's going to be hard to get it. But maybe, like we were talking about restaurants yesterday, that this will be the breaking point for the status quo. We can't just keep trying to save pennies while every city is sinking. Well, and right. And in crises, these barriers that we've always had will fall. I mean, we got a new county government because of the crisis of the massive corruption of the Jimmy DeMora, Frank Russo years. True. And, and you know, maybe the legislature could pave the way for, for a vote. But you also have the suburban aversion of being served by Cleveland. The people who live in suburbia might be more comfortable with the level of services they get now. And they don't want Cleveland being in charge because they the people don't consider the level of service to be as good there. It depends. Some bedroom communities might really benefit from extra income taxes from people working from home and they might get better services. And so they'll say no way to a merger. But others are going to be in a worse spot because of unemployed residents and their services are going to be dropping anyway. So it is going to take looking outside your own boundaries to see the big picture, I think, to make any of this happen. So what it comes down to is that the suburbs that get the money crunch because of unemployment and dropping income taxes, they'll be willing to talk about it. But the wealthier suburbs that may have hedges against it will stay stay clear of it. We'll have to see. I really do think that you cannot be um, so myopic in your view if you're going to be, it's got to be better for the whole whole region. I don't think it'll get a lot of traction unless there's a lot more suffering. Maybe if cities lay off huge parts of their police and firefighter staff, which are most of their budgets, Maybe people would be open to it. They just never have been. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Ohio asking employers to report workers who don't come back because they fear the coronavirus? This one is puzzling, Jane Cahoon. On the one hand, state officials have said people need to do whatever they can to protect themselves from the virus. But on the other, the state wants to know who is declining to work to protect themselves. Right. So now that businesses, uh, many businesses have opened back up, the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services set up a web page for businesses to report workers who refuse to come back so that they can reevaluate whether they're still eligible for unemployment. They say Ohio law prohibits individuals from receiving unemployment benefits if they refuse to accept offers of suitable work or or they quit work without good cause. But you know that because of the the scare and because of all of the things that Governor Mike DeWine and Health Director Dr. Amy Acton say people are acutely aware of this virus and they're afraid of it. And so we hear from them regularly saying, I'm worried that my employer isn't going to keep me safe if I 
don't go back because I don't want to bring the virus back to my family. Can I get unemployment? And what the state seems to be saying here is we want to know who's saying that so that we can take away their unemployment. Well, the, you know, the state does have a responsibility to ensure that people who get unemployment benefits, you know, legitimately qualify um, for them. But, but you're right. I mean, I think about people with underlying conditions who are just really scared to go back or they fear that their employers aren't going to take the right precautions. Apparently, there's an administrative review process you can go through to determine if you're still eligible that, that uses what they call a reasonable person standard to determine whether, you know, whether that employee has a legitimate reason and doesn't feel safe. But unfortunately, in general, the law doesn't have a lot of protections for people who, who feel they have to make this decision between their health and their job. Yeah, Laura Johnston, we had a pretty big story about this a couple of weeks ago and the hurdle for proving that is really high. Yeah, you have to, it's a reasonable person standard. And if you have written documentation, you're going to be a lot better off. But the idea is you have to speak up. You have to prove that your, your boss will not, you know, serve your, the employees well, but it's your burden of proof. Okay. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting that the state is now seeking that information. I think people are going to be a bit frightened of that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are the American City Business Journals coming to Cleveland? If you've ever picked up one of these things, they are thick publications. And it's a business publication that's about business, not sports, not dining, not entertainment, business. It's also a sister company to Advance Ohio. So, Laura Johnston, are we getting a Cleveland version? Yes. Uh, the Cleveland Business Journal will cover economic development, commercial real estate, finance, technology, retail restaurants, healthcare, hospitalities, and other industries when it launches May 18th. Where else are they in Ohio and the region? Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Louisville. So, all around us. But we won't get the printed edition. I mean, I, I've subscribed to these things for a year, a while back. And man, they are thick. I mean, they're, they're, they're just, there's some heft to them, but we're not going to get that. Not right now. It's just online. I don't know what will come in the future. Well, it's great to see an expansion of journalism of any kind in Cleveland. And it's especially great to have something of this caliber. It's this week in the CLE. How much is Ohio increasing coronavirus testing? Jen Cahoon, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announced a pretty big ramp up in testing Monday but not for everyone. What's the plan? So now that they have more reagent and more swabs, they're equipped to do more testing. So they issued this new set of guidelines with various tiers of people who should be tested first. They were already testing people who are hospitalized and and healthcare workers. Those were already a priority, but um, now they have people in nursing homes and mental health facilities and other what they call congregate living settings who show symptoms of the coronavirus. And and now there'll even be some people that don't have symptoms who can get tested, right? Well, yes. First of all, people with symptoms who are 65 and older or have underlying conditions are also on that list. But then people with or without symptoms who are undergoing essential surgeries or um medically necessary surgeries that don't require an overnight stay. They can be tested even if they're not symptomatic. Right. What else was on the the big chart they showed? Well, as I said, people with underlying conditions, um, 
And I think they, you know, want to be aware of the way minorities are affected by this illness and, and to try to prioritize them as well. A lot of people who have no symptoms have been wondering for a while now whether they have had it. No word yet on when Ohio will get the, the wide-scale antibody testing? I know they still want to do that, but, but we haven't really heard any specifics on that. And Laura Johnson, there might be an advance in testing that gets rid of the nasal swabs altogether? Yes, and this is good news for two reasons. One, those log swabs are really uncomfortable for patients since they have to get to the back of the intersection of the nose and throat. And two, there's a shortage of swabs. So Yale University is looking at whether they could use saliva, and the results are really promising so far. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. What did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine say about protesters accosting reporters and parading outside the home of Health Director Amy Acton? Jane Cahoon? Well, the governor uncharacteristically spoke out against the protesters, saying they were obnoxious, that's the word he used, and that it was not fair game to harass reporters or or go to the home of his health director. We talked about this yesterday, the accosting of the television reporter covering the protests before the briefing and the small group that protested outside Acton's house. I was just surprised that DeWine came right out of the blocks Monday to criticize the behavior. I mean, he did a moment of silence for the 50th anniversary of Kent State and then blasted away at the protesters. Yeah, it was interesting. He he prefaced his remarks by saying that in all of the various public offices he's held over the years, and there are many, people have protested against him. And that's fine. That's fair game. He respects their First Amendment rights. But he reminded everyone that he's the guy who was elected. He's the one who sets the policy. And if anybody has a problem with that policy, they should direct their criticism at him, not at people who are unelected and just trying to do their jobs. So here's a here's the question. Do you think the reporters appreciated what he said or were they queasy? There's always this push-pull relationship there. The reporters are the governor's watchdog, the ones that ask the hard questions, but they work with him every day and they get to know him. And so there's a relationship. But when he stands up in front of the world and and defends the reporters, how do they feel? Yeah, the last thing a reporter wants is to be part of a story you're trying to cover or to be perceived as cozy, you know, with the administration. But, you know, this was over-the-top behavior, and and I think people were kind of glad that he called it out. This is Laura Johnston. He wasn't specifically saying, you know, these are my friends, don't do that. He was, like, standing up for their First Amendment rights to be journalists. And I think there's a subtle difference there, but he was just really saying these are important. It's good for our democracy. They're telling your message too. So lay off, be polite to people. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a good message overall. I I just, if I were the reporter, I, I, it would have made me, I, I would have been like 50% glad he said it and 50%, you know, it would have made me queasy. Anyway, this week in the CLE. When will Ohio BMVs finally reopen? The Bureau of Motor Vehicles and Driver License Offices have been closed for nearly two months. The state has exempted people from citations if their license or tags expires, but people want to get their papers in order. So, Jane Cahoon, when might that happen? Well, Lieutenant Governor John Houston at the briefing on Monday had some good news about this. He said they hope to start opening the BMVs by the end of May. But they have to be sure that there are proper procedures for social distancing and 
things like sneeze shields, stuff like that to protect customers. Yeah, I don't know. I I got my license last fall, the secure license. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's just a mob scene. I don't know how you're going to do social distancing. But Houston said something about people making or checking in or making appointments online instead of just showing up. Right. They have this get in line online program that they've been gradually rolling out. It's in like 48 or 48 registrars have it already. And they want to make this available statewide before they reopen all these bureaus. It's a way to to um, secure your place in line online so that you're not in the office for all that long. Uh, he, He also stressed that there are already several things that you can do online, like get your vehicle registered and so forth. Yeah, but that new secure license, you have to do it there. And right. it's a good, it's a 15 minute process because of all the stuff they have to do. Two people have to sign off. He did seem to say it would take a while to create the backlog that the closings have created. I mean, you got basically two months, more than two months of, of uh, renewals that didn't take place. There's still a long window, a grace period, right? Where you won't get tickets if your stuff expires. Right. There, there's a 90-day grace period once the governor lifts the state of emergency, or you'll have until December 1st, whichever one of those things comes first. So people don't have to rush right out and do it uh, when the emergency is lifted. Okay. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. How are private practice attorneys getting work done during the coronavirus era? A lot of what lawyers do requires notarized signatures, which have to be done in person. And that's hard when you're trying to social distance. Jane Cahoon, what's the word here? Well, Jeremy Pelzer did a story about some attorneys who have gotten creative with this. They, you know, to satisfy that in-person requirement, including drive-through stands where people can drive up to get their documents notarized. And one attorney has an office with a a big spacious front porch and she can watch clients sign the document through through a window uh, as as they <laughs> and then they drop them through the the mail slot uh so that's that's creative but one one problem they haven't been able to really get around is trying to serve their clients in in nursing homes that's just that's a tough one you know you can do a lot of signatures these days completely electronically the notion of a notary or in-person signature seems so outdated anymore. It's an, almost an anachronism. Is it possible that the coronavirus persuades legislators to finally wipe out the idea of a notary? Yeah, the the pandemic has shed light on some of these problems with, with the existing system, which is kind of outdated. But, you know, I, I think they really want to tread cautiously here because, some of the lawyers said, you know, you don't want to make it too easy to execute a document that you could open yourself up to some dangers that way. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, you can pretty much do everything. I mean, if you can file your income taxes electronically, but you can't, you know, you can't sign a, a document electronically. It seems like it seems like it's going to go away. It's this week in the CLE. What is Cleveland's $28 million program to help small businesses harmed by the coronavirus and people? Mayor Frank Jackson announced this Monday. Laura Johnston, what is it? 
So $28 million, and that will go to both businesses and residents. There'll be grants and loans to prop up the businesses and to help provide food, utility, and housing help to residents. It will also address this digital divide that have a lot of Cleveland school kids unable to access their schoolwork remotely. Where does the money come from? So we're getting $18 million from the federal government and $10 million from the city budget. So what, how will it help the small businesses? I know the small businesses are a big concern for the mayor. He thought that they got skipped over in a large part by the federal program. So how is he aimed to change that? So $5.5 million will be loans that could be used to cover uncollected receipts, utilities, payroll, and mortgages for the businesses. $3 million would be for emergency cash flow. And $2 million would go to small businesses like restaurants, barbershops, and storefront retail. It could pay for protective gear for the people who work there who interact with the public. And the money for, for people in need, how's that work? It's similar to the Cuyahoga County program. There's rent help. Uh, food, senior services, uh, there's help for people with special needs, and a half a million dollars for that improved broadband to help the kids in Cleveland get access to their schoolwork. This is a little risky, right? Cleveland has lost a lot of income tax money already because of the jobs lost to the virus. And the people working from home surely will seek to collect back the taxes that have been withheld from them during these months away from the city. Did Jackson address whether he is confident he has the money to do this? He thinks he's going to be able to keep all of those income taxes and that state law is on his side. And he's probably pretty glad that that we approved that 2.5% income tax a few years ago. He did not address the long-term implications that if people decide with the blessing of their employees, employers to work permanently from home. And that's something experts have predicted in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. So that could hit Cleveland really hard. Yeah, and it's really wishful thinking to think he's going to hold on to a bunch of income taxes for people that weren't in the city. The courts are going to decide that, but the odds are not in his favor. That confidence is false. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are Cleveland State University and the University of Akron doing to cope with money lost to the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, Akron sounds like it is making even bigger steps than it did a few years back when the president got run out of his job because of the controversy. What did they announce yesterday? University of Akron President Gary Miller said in a video message on Monday that the university's plan to offset 65 to $70 million in decreased revenue is going to include cutting six of its 11 colleges. But they didn't identify which ones. Nope. I'm sure there are a lot of people waiting nervously to hear that. What's interesting is that the University of Akron has stultifying debt. That was why they were trying such radical changes back, I think it was six or so years ago. But the alumni were furious and the president was eventually replaced. Is the university using the crisis of the virus to do what it needed or wanted to do back then? Maybe. It seems to have gone kind of in a spiral over those last six years with a you know rotating door of professors or sorry, presidents and falling in enrollment because of all of the the turmoil. So they might be forced to make these hard choices. And we keep talking about this with the restaurants and with regionalism, that this might be the turning point because they have no other choice that they have to do what's best in the long run rather than just keep patching things. And at Cleveland State, Harlan Sands made it sound like big changes are coming, but he didn't offer any details. No, he did give it a catchy title, though, CSU 2.0. And that could include restructuring the colleges within the university or changes in staffing. There could be furloughs or layoffs. 
Um, there's also fancy sounding stuff like, quote, strategic realignment. But we don't know what that means yet. You know, I, I, I just wonder if something else is going on here. Colleges and universities have said for years that they have a big set of decisions coming, a crisis of fewer students. We've heard that a lot of colleges may not make it. So it sounds like these two universities are finding an opportunity in this crisis to remake themselves so that they can compete in the future. So this is is less about the coronavirus and more about survival. It sounds like it. And they have to think about the future. And maybe these colleges should all be working together more so they don't all offer the same program so they can specialize and then get the students. Uh, they wouldn't be competing so much for students because students wouldn't have so many choices. But my whole plan all along to play for my kids' college education has been that the system has to get broken and rebuilt at some point because it couldn't just keep increasing exponentially all along. At least that was my optimistic viewpoint on that. Well, these guys might be counting on the crisis to dampen the criticism of alumni as they make these changes. So it's going to be fascinating to see what they announce in the coming weeks or days, I guess. It's this week in the CLE. Okay, lots of stories today, and I, I'm sure that that first provocative discussion will <laughs> will bring criticism. The news wheel keeps turning. Thanks, Lauren Jane, and thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE from Cleveland.com. We'll be back tomorrow.